And over the last week, I've kind of watched this um, both humorous and tragic, sad thing play out out my kitchen window. See, I have a neighbor who has this gorgeous, large maple tree. And last weekend, he spent all weekend um, out cleaning up the leaves. I mean, his entire yard was covered just thick with these maple leaves. Spent hours, over half a day, just sucking up all the leaves in his yard. And I remember looking out the kitchen window and being like, man, that looks really good. And then as the week progressed, started to notice, huh, the yard doesn't look as good. And then Friday morning, um, got up, was making my coffee, and looked out the window, and his yard was covered again. And Saturday, yesterday, he spent all day again out cleaning up the leaves. And my wife made a comment. We, she looked up at the top of the tree, and she was like, and there's like two more Saturdays worth of leaves in that tree. And I just had this thought of like, I mean, how um, frustrating and futile is leaf cleanup in the fall, right? I mean, just you think you get it, it looks good, and then the next week more leaves have fallen, and then the next week more leaves are falling. And as I was thinking about just the futility of those leaves, what came to mind was really how I've emotionally felt over just the midst of what we've been experiencing this year with um, politics. And the fact that um, as we're in the middle of this series called Talking Points, I've felt that same way as we've dealt with the struggle around politics and debates. It seems like every day uh, there's another one of these moments that plays out on social media feed, on conversations and talking heads, that the echo chambers, the, you know, there's just, it's futile. It just feels hopeless. It just feels um, never ending. It's like politics and the pandemic. You know, it's like the old song when you were little that you learned to sing, John Jacob Jingleheimer Smith, right? The song that never ends. Like this feels like it will never end. And I know that it will, but it doesn't feel that way. And that, that persistent, perpetual, we'll never get out of this, that there's always going to be more divisiveness and more tension and more stress um, just feeds these echo chambers and more outrage. And what I want to do today is um, look at a better way. That over the last month, we've kind of walked through a few different talking points. The first talking point is for those who are listening who are Christians, for us to be reminded that our hope is not in the election, no matter who wins. Our hope is in the resurrection. What happened to Jesus? What is still he on the throne? That's our hope. The fact that an empty tomb, not who sits in the Oval Office or some other room in the White House, that's not our hope. Which means on November 3rd, November 4th, probably December and January, we can sleep a little differently than the rest of the world because we haven't staked all our hopes in how people stand, vote, mail, and, and elect the next representatives and senators and president. And that there's a better way that because we have that hope, we can fight the tendency that tells us to hurry up and feel that um, oftentimes is at the center of the engine of these echo chambers where we're feeling opinions, not forming them. Where that tweet or that comment or that meme, it feels right, so we retweet it, we resend it. 
that instead of hurrying up and feeling, we slow down and think. And that by slowing down and think that we are in a different posture, we're in a place of humility, we can listen, we can learn, and we can start to walk out of these echo chambers that we find ourselves in. But when we walk out, that's not enough. In fact, as we kind of come to the end of talking points, as we near the end of the series, I don't want to just give you a talking point, I want to give you the point, what we're meant to do when we walk out of those echo chambers. And to look at that, to discover that way, I want to take you to a story that quite frankly on the surface will not feel like it fits this present moment. But I'm telling you, if you hang with me and you lean in, you might find that there's a lot more in this story to speak to where we are than what just is on the surface. The passage I want to look at today is found in the Gospel of John. And it's called the Gospel of John because it's written by John, who was the youngest of Jesus' disciples. He was the one who was tasked with taking care of Jesus' mom when Jesus was crucified on the cross and subsequently resurrected because there was no welfare system in the day. Um, Jesus picked John specifically to take care of Mary. And so for the rest of her life, she um, would live with him and he would essentially function as a surrogate son to her. Now, John would go on and write multiple books. He has five different books in the Christian scriptures that we call the New Testament. But the one that he wrote towards the end of his life uh, that's a little unique is the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was part of a four-volume set around the biographies and the life of Jesus. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written early. Just a few years after Jesus' resurrection, Matthew, Mark, and Luke began to pen their letters. But... John waited towards the end. A whole generation of Christians had risen up. And John, towards the end of his life, realized there's stories that were not told. There's there's things about Jesus that still hasn't been taught or experienced or written down. And he wanted to make sure that he put into writing those stories before he passed away. And for John, doing so will forever be grateful. Because there's aspects in the book of John that we don't find Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And one of those stories is the one I want to look at today. It's um, in the message notes, and it's a story that I would encourage you, if you have the Encounter Church app, you can go back and read through in its entirety. It's over 40-plus verses, so I'm not going to walk through all the verses today, but it's worth reading them. I want to kind of highlight a few of them as we skim the story found in John chapter 4, an interaction that happens right after Jesus has essentially started his public ministry. He's gone to Jerusalem. He's kind of made a scene. Religious leaders are already irritated, and now there's beginning rumblings, and there's already a a group of haters who are forming around who Jesus is. And as Jesus returns back to Galilee, he travels north, and to do so, John 4 picks up and says, now he had to go through Samaria, because Samaria was a region in between Jerusalem and Judea. I mean, Jerusalem and Galilee. So this area down here was called Judea. Up here is this region called Galilee. And Samaria was right in between those two. So Jesus is returning from Jerusalem up. So he has to go through. So he says he comes to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, what I love about the Bible is that this isn't a collection of mythologies and made-up stories. Everything that I just read, you can go visit today. 
that Sychar, the Jacob's well, those things are still present in modern-day Israel. In fact, Jacob's well is still there. It still has water because it's being refreshed from a spring, and it's about 150 feet deep. And for the original reader, John is putting some phrases in there that would have stood out as they read. It was about noon would have been one of those phrases. John's already setting the tone. Jesus is exhausted. He's already been walking. It was a three-day journey from Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee. And it was oftentimes done on foot in the middle of a hot desert sun. And it says he gets to Jacob's well around noon, and he's exhausted. And while he leans back on the well, it says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Well, Jesus is leaning up against the well. He has nothing to draw from the well. He's thirsty. Samaritan woman walks up, and he says, Hey, uh, will you give me something to drink? John makes it clear, a little bit of protectionism, probably. John's like, okay, just to be clear, the reason he's asking her for water is that we weren't there. If we'd have been there, we would have gotten him a glass of water, right? He's like, the reason we weren't there is that we had gone into town to buy food. He says, then the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, John is writing this in a day and an age, perhaps knowing that generations of readers would read it, that they may not be as uh, aware of the Jewish Samaritan tension. So John makes a point to say, for Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And what we see in this passage, before we go on any further, I think is two really important things to notice. Because what we see in this passage and hinted at in this passage. In fact, what will play out in verse 27 is the disciples will come back and we'll get a sense of their response when they walk up on Jesus and they see this woman talking to him. And she's Samaritan. They're a little disturbed by it. They're bothered by it. But they don't want to say anything. And it's because what the disciples are doing in that moment is they're essentially holding their nose as they walk through Samaria. They're tolerating the Samaritans. They need something from them. They've got to buy food. So that's what they're doing. They've gone into town to buy food. This is a little bit of a necessity. They're tolerating them. And this is one of the first ways, I think, when we get into seasons like this, this is one of the human responses that we tend to default to. We tolerate those people that aren't like us that don't like what we like. We put up with them. We hold our nose. We tolerate people who we work with, who we disagree with their habits or their uh, lifestyles or their kids. Right? This, I think, is really apparent when you watch groups of adults come around people's kids that they frankly don't like. But because they're friends with the person who has the kids, they tolerate them. You can kind of notice that they kind of pat them on the head. Hey, buddy, you know. Um, but the moment they're away from them, they make comments about the kids or about the parenting style. In the moment, they put up with them. They're tolerating them. And I think that for many of us, oftentimes we end up tolerating 
Democrats or tolerating Republicans or tolerating the socialists or those Marxists because we're married to them or we work with them or we have to put up with them because of someone we care about and they are someone they care about. This is one of those insidious ways in culture that we often play out our disagreements. We tolerate other races. We tolerate other political persuasions. It's tolerance. But tolerance by itself is not necessarily something that I or you would ever want to inspire to with those closest around us. When people say, well, what do you think about them? Oh, I tolerate them. It's not something we want people to say. And yet that's what is playing out with the disciples when they're in that town. Verse 27 kind of teases that out a little bit more for us. But there's another thing. And John actually writes this interesting phrase at the end. He says, for Jews did not associate with Samaritans. The actual phrase he writes is uh, that Jews don't touch the dishes that Samaritans use. Which is an interesting phrase because um, by the time John writes this letter, there will have been a change in Jewish law from this moment till the time that John actually writes it. The change in the law actually is a law that the Jewish religious leaders pass that forbid Jews to touch dishes that Samaritans have touched. This idea that a Samaritan is so morally corrupt. They're so, because um, Samaritans were both racially and religiously different than the Jews. And there is not a, a really good American equivalent of the, the disgust and the disagreement and the frustration between the two groups. This isn't Republican-Democrat. This isn't uh, Red Sox or Yankees. This is deep hatred. This idea that if you even touch what they've touched, it makes you unclean. Which is why John tells us Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. Some of them, some Jews hated Samaritans so much that when they went from Jerusalem to Galilee, some of them, instead of passing through Samaria like Jesus did, some would actually add days to their trip and they would go all the way around. They would go all the way around Samaria to skip it so they wouldn't even breathe the same air the Samaritans were breathing. You see, some Jews in that culture we're doing something that we do in this culture. They didn't tolerate them. They were not even willing to do, they, to, to do that. It wasn't even a neglect. It was an outright rejection of them. See, I think what we see in this passage is two ways that our culture responds to people who disagree with us and disagree with them. It's we tolerate them or we cancel them. We neglect them or we reject them. We Simply avoid them. They're, those Democrats are idiots. Those Republicans are racist. When we, we write one-sentence sweeping statements, we reduce an individual to, to one aspect of who they are. Notice, Jews did not associate with Samaritans. All, every bit of uniqueness of who that person was had been completely reduced to one dimension. Because when you do that, it's easier to cancel them. It's easy to cancel a whole group of people if you take who they are and you reduce them to one dimension. And we do this with religion. We do this with race. We do this with lifestyle. And what we see in this short verse is oftentimes what we see playing out on our social media feeds and in our own personal lives. 
toleration or cancelization. And yet, what Jesus does in this is he does something different. And it's the point that is the point in our talking point series that I want to illustrate. Jesus engages her in a conversation. Notice he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. They've bantered a little bit prior to this moment about you don't have a bucket. Um, Jesus is like, well, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water. And she's like, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to draw water? And Jesus says, look, everyone who drinks this water, speaking of the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, look, I've got water that will satisfy your thirst But you can already tell Jesus is talking about something a little different. But she's not exactly sure. She says, look, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Why does she say that? Well, the reason she says that is why Jesus is about to respond. She's there at noon. And a reader in first century would have recognized that a woman did not come to the well alone at noontime. That wasn't normal. Groups of women would travel to wells at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. In fact, if you were to travel in any part of the third world today, you would find in third world areas that groups of women often still travel to water supplies in the morning and in the evening. It's safer that way. It avoids the hot sun. Uh, Carrying buckets of water is a really heavy activity. It's very exhausting. And so In cultures today, this still plays out that's playing out in this moment. So she's there for a reason. And it's not because she's come to get water. She's there to avoid all the other women. And because all the other women are avoiding her. You see, it's not just the Jews that have canceled Samaritans. This woman has been canceled too. She's been canceled by the women in her community. They've written her off. So she's all alone at noon, drawing water. And what Jesus does is he says, hey, go call your husband and come back. And she responds, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. And then I love this. She's like, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Like, you know a conversation's getting awkward when you turn it to talk about religion, right? I mean, if you're in the midst of a, an awkward conversation with your coworker and you say, let's talk about religion or politics, you know it must be awkward. And that's what's playing out. This is so awkward that it's safer to talk about religion, something she knows they vastly disagree over. Because Jesus has just identified her chief reason for being at that well at noon. It's the fact that she is not just a woman who's been married multiple times, which in that culture would have been that scarlet letter. She's gone through five marriages, and now the one she's with is not even her husband, which would have been beyond scandalous for the day. She's a woman who's plagued with shame and guilt, embarrassment. And yet, this is the part that I think has the most wisdom for us all in this moment. That's why I gave you the warning at the beginning. I know this story will feel like a weird place to talk about politics, pandemics, and 
everything else. But what this woman is doing isn't too far off from what we do. You see, she had pursued a good thing. She had pursued a relationship. She would gotten married. But in the pursuit of that good thing, she had allowed that good thing to become a God thing. She had allowed this good thing she was pursuing, this complimenting, relational, romantic thing, to become the all-encompassing thing for her life. And the first relationship didn't satisfy, so she moved on to the second. And that one didn't complete her, and she moved on to the third. She had bought into this notion that a romantic relationship was going to fulfill her. And don't, don't hear me wrong. Romantic relationships are good, but they're not God. And anytime a good thing becomes our God thing, that Jerry Maguire moment, right? You complete me. Like, I just got to be real with you. I, like, my wife has never heard me say that to her because I love her. Because it would be wrong to tell that amazing woman that I call my wife that she bears the responsibility of completing me. Do you know how messed up I am? Do you know how big the holes inside my soul are? And the fact that she, one human being, could fulfill and finish and complete me is ridiculous. But our love songs, they say that, right? It's like, can I go across the mountain? I don't know why men are always singing about climbing mountains. There is nothing on top of a mountain that ever changes a romantic relationship. I've been on some really tall mountains, and I've never noticed a shop that says, for all your relational needs, the mountain shop, right? But somehow, guys want to climb the mountain. They want to swim the oceans. I'm like, girl, if I tried to swim an ocean, I would die. That's why you don't want me to swim the ocean. And why would I swim in the ocean? Like, there's better ways of getting across the ocean. Like, maybe in the middle of the ocean, there's an ocean shop for all romantic needs. But I could take a boat or an airplane to get there. Right? I know I'm being ridiculous, but you get my point. Right? We put this good thing, but we size it and we place all the God-sized things. No woman, not even the most amazing woman that I'm married to can complete me. She can't fill all of my relational needs. For those who've lived through this pandemic and you have that significant other, you probably still struggle with loneliness, don't you? Why? If they were to, to be the one to complete you, you shouldn't have. And it's either they didn't complete you or they never could complete you. Because you and I were made with God-sized holes in our heart. And no good thing can feel that thing. And this not just romantic relationships. The, this principle applies to everything. It, it applies to politics and to government. It applies to our reputation and to our bank accounts and to our careers and degrees. That we fall into these traps of believing that good thing, whatever that good thing may be, is finally going to fulfill me. Well, when I get that job, or when I finally have freedom to do this, or when I get into that rom romantic relationship, then, then I'll be better. And many of us pursue the wrong thing, pursuing the very right thing. This is, in fact, something I um, love to, to Google. One of the things that you will be surprised to hear is that there is an, another silent epidemic in this nation that no one's talking about right now. And someone needs to. That's why I'm here today. 
I'm here to talk about this current plague called children getting trapped in claw machines. See, this is a real problem. Google child stuck in claw machine. And what you'll find is there's an entire Pinterest page dedicated to pictures of children stuck in claw machines. This happens frequently. There are dozens of pictures on the internet you can find just by typing in that simple phrase. And what kids in claw machines illustrate for me is the same thing that I see in this woman's life. It's that if we're not careful, the things that we're consumed by will and can consume us. And for that woman, it was the pursuit of a romantic relationship that was going to ultimately satisfy, and it didn't. For others of us, in the middle of this political election season, we can fall into the trap of being convinced that if, we, if our party got elected, then problems would be fixed. If the Supreme Court was only this way, then the world would be a just place. If only this was what was happening in um, our judicial system or our political system, or if this was the way we were responding to whatever problem is that we're facing, then it would be good. We completely sell out to this notion that if only those things, then we'd be okay. And we allow good things, good arguments, sometimes bad arguments, to become the God-sized thing. We get consumed, and in the end, it consumes us. And this is real. I have watched relationships deteriorate this year over dumb things like masks, over ridiculous things about people's political views or their um, medical views. Like, I don't know if you noticed this, but everybody around March became epidemiologist. Everybody. It's like everybody had an opinion about the pandemic. Most of those people never even went to school for epidemiology. But they got an opinion, which is fine. But what was tragic is I watched people's opinions become obstacles for relationships. There are people in social media feeds who've unfriended each other. There are physical relationships that have deteriorated because of a mask or because you saw in their Facebook feed or they made a comment that they're voting for Trump or they're voting for Biden or maybe you rode by their house and you saw a sign in their yard. And you've, you're, you just skipped tolerance. You just straight up canceled them. Because what you were consumed by ultimately consumed that relationship. And what Jesus is doing here is he's not allowing those tendencies of humanity to rob this woman of her humanity. He's there to find this woman whom most of her community had written off. There's neglect, there's reject, and he's come because he's like, I want you to know, I see you. He loves her. This is what we see play out in this dialogue, in the entire story. But here's the thing. I, I know that, like, you can say, well, okay, are you saying that the better way is love and that you just need to love? Yeah, like, I've seen those billboards. Yeah, I've seen those slogans and all the different phrases around love. But no, I'm not saying the way our culture defines love. I'm not saying with this, like, flu-flu, no teeth kind of love. Jesus loves differently than how our culture defines love. Our culture oftentimes 
What they say is love is really just blind affirmation and conflict avoidance. We say, oh, we just need to love one another. And what it really means is we just need to avoid conflict and affirm, you do you. You do you, I do me. That's love. And that's not love. And then you have some people who react to that, who see love from a very different frame. And, you know, and so they want to kind of lob grenades, and that's why I'm voicing it, because some of you, when I said the word love, you kind of instantly kind of rose up. You're like, oh, no, one of these, like, love's the answer kind of things. And notice what Jesus does. He says, the conversation, she says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, being Mount Gerizim, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, right? Woman, Jesus replied, not in a derogatory way. Woman is a respectful term. He says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then he says this phrase, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. And we worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. And what I love about Jesus in this moment is he's demonstrating love in a way that's different than how our culture demonstrates it. He demonstrates both compassion and conviction. He's got grace and he has truth. He does both. And we live in a culture that right now is, for various reasons, have swung over here to the, to the gracie side, the loosey-goosey gracie side of you do you, I, I affirm whatever you do, and because that's what love does. But then Jesus comes and he says, no, it's, there's conviction. But he's not one of these people over here who likes to lob truth grenades and make statements like, well, it was the truth. They deserve to hear it. Or, you know, not my problem. They can't handle the truth. And this self-righteousness of like, well, truth is truth and they're an idiot. Or they, they're living a lie. Jesus does both because there's a ditch on either side of this road. There can be the compassion ditch where you no longer hold on the conviction, or there's the conviction ditch where you no longer reflect the compassion. And Jesus did both. He says a hard thing to her. He doesn't negate. He doesn't skip over. He's not, he's not getting soft with truth, but he's still soft. And it's this conviction and this compassion that I think undergird what I mean when I say the word love. Um, when I was in college, um, I remember watching, it was kind of the early days of the internet. And here's this, um, this guy that I was friends with that I knew. Um, he was running for student body president of our college. It was a pretty significantly large college. And he came in and they were pulling a practical joke on him. And he walks into the student body office, and they've filled the entire place up with balloons. And he's kind of, kind of angry at them because he's like, did, did the school budget, did our leadership budget, did our student government budget pay for these balloons? And they're, the people running the joke are like, no, 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 we paid for the balloons. And they're like, well, he's like, what about the air? Like, where'd the air come from? And they're like, are you being serious? And he's like, this is me being serious. Like, he's like getting really angry and really frustrated. And, and everybody kind of loses it because they're like, the air came from the air. Like there's no helium in these balloons. It's just the air. And um, 
Because they had a hidden camera, the whole moment got captured. And it, it was one of the first videos to go viral on the internet. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here's this really nice guy. And people are posting horrible things on Facebook. They're saying really wicked things on different social media boards and chat forums. And people are calling him and harassing him. And they're like, you're a blank, blank idiot. You know, what are you doing? You should just die. I mean, like the same things that happened today was happening then. And it just kind of started to erode him. And every week I would see him, he just kind of carried this weight of dejection. And my mentor at the time, who was kind of a father figure, I remember watching him call the, the guy over and, and say a few things, and then he walked away, and he felt a little bit better. And I was like, Dr. Milani, like, what did, you, what did you say to him that changed everything? He said, I just told him, I just reminded him of something that's really important. I reminded him that his worst moment had been called on camera. And that while that wasn't fair, that most of these people who were ridiculing him and, and act like they never had a worst moment, that in reality, they just never had their worst moment called on camera. And I let him know that he was more than his worst moment. I let him know he was more than his worst decision. And that that does not have to define him. Your worst moment doesn't have to define you. And Jesus was there that day for the very reason to tell this Samaritan woman that her worst moments didn't have to define her either. That there was hope. In fact, this is why he said in the passages a few verses before, he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, I've come to this well to point out the leaky bucket you have. Not so that I feel better, but so that I can make you better. See, for so many of us, we walk with guilt and shame. We live under the weight of things that we've done, that have been done to us. We allow our worst moments to define us. And yet when Jesus shows up to point out her leaky bucket, he only points it out so that he can fill it. And maybe for some of us walking around, we're dealing with guilt and shame, but maybe there's another part of that where God's been kind of kind of stirring, reminding you of a conversation or some things you've been doing recently. Or maybe even in, this, in the middle of this message, you realize there's some relationships that you've allowed to go sideways because of something as dumb as a mask or politics. And hear me, I get those things are important. But they're not that important. And maybe a person, a face, a whole a whole group of people came to mind. And that God doesn't point out your leaky bucket to make you feel bad or to make you feel empty. He points out your leaky, leaky bucket so he can fill it. So that he can give you water that will allow water to well up to eternal life inside of you. 
Because you are more than your worst moment. You are greater than your worst decision. And to make the point, Jesus shows up at that well in her worst moment to show us how to love well. You see, what's fascinating to me is that Samaria as a country doesn't exist anymore. But that Samaritan woman, as a Christian, I believe she still does. Politics, pandemics, they don't last forever. But people do. And if we're going to love well, then we need to love the things that will never pass away. People matter. Relationships matter. And ultimately, God stepped to that well to remind us today that he wants to put inside of us a well of life to flow out into other people's life. That that love could well up in us so that others could experience it. 